Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. Welcome back to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. We're coming to you now from FIRE's DC office. Last episode was in studio at our Philadelphia office. We like to change it up around here. And, but we do have joining with us someone who was on that last episode, Aaron Turr. Aaron, welcome back to the show. You've got a new job here at FIRE. That's right, yes. I'm, I'm now uh, FIRE's Director of Public Advocacy. Yep. So we're, uh, I think, you know, we realize we've been having these rapid response meetings uh, since our expansion earlier this year, uh, trying to address various off-campus speech issues and <clears throat> realize that we really uh, need an entire department that's going to be dedicated to this task of, of engaging in, in non-litigation advocacy. Um, uh, to Which we have on campus, on campus, yeah, but we so, don't have off campus, right? And that's where I, and that's by the way, my former department, yep. <laughs> which is campus rights advocacy. So yeah, it's the same sort of idea, uh, non litigation advocacy, but for off campus issues. Yeah, and you're going to be building out a team here <laughs> to help you with that. Right. So if there's anyone listening who's interested in that sort of work, uh, reach out. I don't think we have a job description up now, but um, hopefully no, but we'll, we'll soon. We'll be looking, yeah. Yeah, so very excited about that because we definitely, we definitely need that support. There's a lot going on happening off campus uh, that does not involve FIRE's active litigation, much of which we're going to discuss today. Um, but joining us today for the discussion of the news and for a conversation about jawboning by the government uh, is joining us Will Duffield. He's a policy analyst in the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government, where he studies speech and internet governance. His research focuses on the web of government regulation and private rules that govern Americans' speech online. Will, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. I think we've met before. You've been at Cato for a while, right? I have, and I've been to lots of free speech events around DC, so uh, probably met, circles, yes, right? exactly, <laughs> either there or uh, I am natively from just outside of Philadelphia. So oh, where about? Chester County. Okay. I lived in West Philadelphia for two years when I first started at FIRE, but I never got out to the burbs very much. Ah, well, they're, they're changing. Yeah. You're not from Philadelphia, are you? No, I'm originally from Long Island, New gotcha. York. Yeah. Gotcha. New Yorker. Good. But I've been in Philly about 10 years now. Oh, did you go to school in Philadelphia? No, but I, I came here. I came to Philly right after graduating law school, okay. which was ten years ago, because oh. uh, my my first job was was clerking for a, a judge on a, a Pennsylvania state court. Oh, okay, yeah. cool, cool. Well, let's jump into it, guys. We're gonna try and do what we've uh, been doing, or at least did in the last episode, which is cover the news of the day related to free expression, and then the second half, we're gonna kind of do a deep dive into one of your areas of expertise, Will, which is jawboning uh, against speech. You have an article for the Cato Institute called Jawboning Against Speech, How Government Bullying Shapes the Rules of Social Media. But before we jump into the news of the day, I want to jump into some breaking news that we didn't really have much time to prepare for before jumping into the show. Um, Fire, as some of our listeners will know, filed a lawsuit against Florida's Stop Woke Act. And the act, essentially, and I'm pulling, I'm just pulling up our press release here because this literally happened 45 minutes ago, um, essentially prohibited instruction on eight concepts related to race, color, national origin, or sex in college classrooms. Colleges 
warn faculty that the law prohibits endorsing, quote, any opinion unless you are endorsing an opinion issued by the Department of Education. So it limits offering even critiques of colorblindness, for example, and requires fac faculty to censor guest lectures. Um, we filed for a preliminary injunction in the case, and just this morning, a federal court halted enforcement of key parts of Florida Stop Woke Act in the state's public universities. And you know a decision's gonna be good when you're filing a First Amendment lawsuit, and the first two lines of the decision quote from 1984. <laughs> so the decision says, it was a bright cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13 and the powers in charge of Florida's public university system have declared the state has unfettered authority to muzzle its professors in the name of freedom. So the court ruled that the, quote, positively dystopian act, quote, officially bans professors from expressing disfavored viewpoints in university classrooms while permitting unfettered expression of opposite viewpoints. The court, as I mentioned, invoked George Orwell to drive home that if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. Uh, it was Our lawsuit was on behalf of a professor, a student, and a student group, and it argued that the higher education provisions of the act unconstitutionally chill free expression and mandate faculty censorship on state college campuses. So it's a big win for us. I wish I could say more. I think it was something like a 129-page opinion uh, that our lawyers are currently going through. But the long and the short of it is um, we won much of what we were asking for in the preliminary injunction. So an exciting morning here at FIRE. So, Aaron, Will, let's uh, jump into the stuff that you guys knew we would be talking about today. Book bans, book bans, book bans, book bans. Aaron, uh, we've been seeing a lot of these, haven't we? Yes, we have. It's become, become something of an unfortunate trend. Um, I think, and it's funny, too, because I feel like it wasn't that long ago that there seemed to me to be a pretty, pretty broad consensus that banning books is wrong and dystopian. <laughs> but that consensus does seem to be breaking down somewhat. Yeah, so FIRE has been a part of the Banned Books Week coalition that Banned Books Week happens every September, I think, um, for years now. And you would get criticisms that it was kind of anachronistic. Book bans weren't happening anymore. And so they even changed it to book bans and challenges. Like, there's a lot of efforts for people to take books off the shelf, but nothing would come of them. You saw this a lot with Harry Potter, for example, and witchcraft. But now that you're actually seeing proactive efforts and successes in getting books off, this, off the shelf, uh, particularly in school libraries, but also um, within curricula. Um, and there's a different way you kind of probably want to look at those between libraries and curricula. Um, one, I think, the state has a little bit more authority to control uh, within public compulsory education. Uh, the other one, uh, as we'll discuss in this case in Keller, Texas, uh, is a little bit more clear cut. But Will, I'm curious to hear how you've been kind of thinking and well, observing these issues. I, I think in a way it's telling that we're seeing the reemergence of book bans in both of these sort of public in a, a state democratic sense mm -hmm. venues. Um, it hasn't moved to private bookshelves. They aren't talking about preventing, at least as far as I know, Barnes and Noble or Amazon. There actually was one books. case, yeah, Aaron. So um, in Virginia, actually, um, genderqueer, there were two state lawmakers. And it was, what was the other one? It was the name of the book. It was something Fury. Um, I 
Court of Mist and Fury? Yeah, I think that's it. It's the one that sounds like Game of Thrones, but, but isn't like a Song of Ice and Fire. But, yeah. Um, but there were two state lawmakers. Yeah, yeah. And they, they, they tried to they invoke some kind of like archaic, but still on the books law where you could essentially sue the book itself and have it declared obscene. I, I see. Well, yeah. perhaps the exception proves the, <laughs> the rule yeah. here. They did uh, not win. They did not but I, I think there's something to the, the reemergence of these sort of demands of public morality in this space uh, first, especially, because there, whether it be the school curriculum or our school or merely community library, uh, there's a sense of democratic communal ownership that you don't have over uh, Barnes and Noble. So if someone is worried about the morals or attitudes of the community, uh, it, it makes sense that they would go there first, but it speaks to the importance of having private channels of, of distribution, um, which aren't uh, winner take all in the same way as your local library. If Amazon stops selling your book, I know there have been some controversies around their private decisions there, you can get it elsewhere. Um, but I think particularly when we look at the groups that we hope for libraries to serve, um, we would expect them to be a book repository of last resort. Um, and unfortunately, they're becoming kind of the, the vanguard for these censorship efforts. Yeah, well, let's talk about one that uh, we've been talking about in our rapid response meetings, Aaron, uh, involving the Keller Independent School District in Keller, Texas. On Monday, November 14th, it voted four to two to adopt a policy banning books in all public school libraries, including high school libraries. Uh, age appropriateness is important to consider in some of this stuff. Um, banning any books that have any reference to gender fluidity. Uh, and during the meeting, you had members of the school board say things like, we're talking about an ideology, a perspective that they're trying to ban. And that's important for a reason I'll get into in a moment. And they wanted to avoid discussion of, quote, political issues. Uh, which is kind of funny because they have political books in the library already, uh, including Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton's books. So board members who voted, the, you know, in the four, major, four to two majority, um, did have some opposition on the board that said that this was going too far, quote, so far beyond the original intent, close quote, of banning material they described as as porn. And there was even some board members who expressed concerns that it could reach content involving. Um, like the Disney movie Milan, <laughs> right? Or the Revolutionary War hero Deborah Sampson. But this is a pretty clear cut um, case uh, with regard to the violations of the First Amendment under a ruling called Board of Education Island Trees Union Free School District v. Pico. Um, Aaron, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So the Supreme Court in that decision, which was 40 years ago, um, explained that. Uh, that school officials do have, they do have broad discretion over the curriculum, and they even have discretion over what gets stocked in school libraries, but they can't exercise that discretion in a narrowly partisan or political way. They can't uh, restrict access to materials um, just for the purpose of, you know, suppressing a, a certain political idea or social perspective. And 
you, you said it before, you quoting the board president in his own words, he said, this is about suppressing an ideology, quote, an ideology a perspective. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a clear-cut violation of the First Amendment. You know, it, they, school officials can make judgments about what goes in the library based on, on viewpoint-neutral criteria like age appropriateness educational or educational value, value right? Yeah. But here they're just kind of, they're, they're not doing themselves any favors by just kind of admitting openly that this really is about suppressing certain viewpoints. The definition here is both quite broad and, as, as you point out, doesn't speak to anything beyond um, ideological content. It, it says here, any theory or ideology that espouses the view that gender is merely a social construct and on. But even that, that first um, prohibition would seem to hit a, a large amount of feminist political thought. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, you've, you've boxed, your, boxed yourself in there to essentially saying that all expressions of gender are biological and there's nothing yeah. else. Um, and I think on, on the right, perhaps we've been quite critical of the conflation of sex and gender on the left or the collapse of one into another. And here you have this school board confusing the two completely or, <laughs> or combining them again um, in, as, as you point out, a very censorious fashion. Yeah, right. You don't even have to be a hardcore feminist to accept that there's some cultural influence, I think, on gender expression, right? Mm -hmm. like, like, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy hunting. I was raised with that as a man in a way that my sister wasn't. Can I talk about that in this school? Can I write a book about that? Mm -hmm. um, well, this is the same school that bumbled its way earlier with one of a new policy involving um, sexual content in books into banning the Bible and the Diary of Anne Frank, yeah. <laughs> which got pulled off the shelves after it after it passed that. Yeah, that so policy. I don't I don't know that anyone should be trusting their judgment after that. Yeah, <laughs> but that the Pico case. And I do want to quote directly from it because I, 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 it's good guidance when thinking through some of these book bans. Uh, the court held, in that case, Justice Harry Blackman made clear that school officials may not remove books for the purpose of restricting access to the political ideas or social perspectives discussed in them when the action is motivated simply by the official's disapproval of the ideas involved. And as we saw from that board quote, they're talking about an ideology, a perspective. And in that Island Tree case v. Pico, Island Tree School District v. Pico case, uh, what were the books they were going after? Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, Langston Hughes' Best Short Stories by Negro Writers, and the group that was seeking to ban them said the books were, quote, anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-Semitic, and just plain filthy. So um, I think Banned Books Week uh, has a new raison d'etre, <laughs> so to speak. It's not just challenges, it's actual bans. Uh, moving forward. So, any other thoughts on banned books before we move on to the next item? Well, you know, one of the, one of the point that we've made uh, in in these types of cases is that it also just teaches students the wrong mm -hmm. lesson about the First Amendment and freedom of expression. Um, I'm just thinking about the recent Supreme Court decision in a, in a high school uh, student speech case, Mahanoy, Mahanoy. which Justice Breyer, writing the majority opinion. Um, uh, called America's public schools, quote, nurseries of democracy, and talked about how our, our representative democracy uh, needs a functioning marketplace of ideas, mm -hmm. including unpopular ideas, and that schools have an interest in uh, 
ensuring that students understand the importance of that principle. And this Texas school district's policy is doing the opposite of that. Yeah, we'll see what happens with it. I'm sure uh, it will get challenged here shortly. I want to pivot now to uh, California. They've passed two laws recently, and we'll cover both of them, but I want to start with the one that I think Aaron, we at FIRE, can get behind. So, uh, what was it, September or October? Uh, they passed a law called the Decriminalizing Artistic Expression Act, which restricts the use of rap lyrics or other artistic expression, although... Uh, creative expression is yeah. the phrase they use, which, as much as this is billed as a rap lyrics bill um, applies much, much more widely. And I think that's where the sort of interesting effects will, will oh, be. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you've, it, the conversation, as you note, has been around the use of rap lyrics in criminal uh, trials. Yeah, because I think there's been a few high profile examples of that happening in prosecutions of rappers recently. So that's the context in which it came up. Yeah. And there was a book and we covered that book on this podcast called Rap on Trial as an introduction written by rapper Killer Mike that talks about the use of rap lyrics to um, essentially uh, put people in jail and how it's usually only applied to rap lyrics. Like they didn't throw Johnny Cash in jail for saying I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die um, or, or at Bob least Mar investigate him. Bob Marley, right? I don't think he actually shot the sheriff <laughs> oh, yeah. to, to, my, to my knowledge. But um, some of the discussion around this was that, that it just couldn't be considered, rap lyrics couldn't be considered at all mm -hmm. in, in these trials. And that's not quite the case, right? Right. Well, this, this bill has some enumerated exceptions that seem to make sense. Um, this creative expression, rap lyrics or not, uh, can't be admitted as evidence unless that expression is created near in time to the charged crime or crimes bears a sufficient level of similarity to the charged crime or crimes, or includes factual details not otherwise publicly available. And I think all of those are, you know, quite, quite anodyne exceptions. And the, the last one in particular would seem key if uh, the lyric is to be useful as evidence. Um, if it includes some non-public information about the crime, well, it seems like the guy knew something and, and wrote about it there. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's about balancing that versus prohibiting evidence that of artistic expression that the prosecution is seeking to introduce uh, just to show, just to, you know, infect the minds of the jury with this impression that the defendant is just a generally violent individual or, or someone who's pr prone to engage in criminal conduct. Yeah, because, can you talk about probative versus prejudicial evidence? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, and I think this law, if I'm go, going based off of my memory of taking evidence in law school, because <laughs> right, I'm, not, I'm not a criminal law expert by any means, but yeah, there's, uh, whenever the state seeks to introduce evidence in a criminal prosecution, the, 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 there's this balancing test between the, the probative value of the evidence, meaning the tendency of the evidence to prove the facts alleged by the prosecution, versus its potential uh, to bias the jury against the defendant in ways that don't so much have to do with the likelihood that they committed this specific crime mm -hmm. on this specific occasion, right? So I think what, what this 
act is trying to do. It, it's it's within that general. It's giving guidance that, to judges that already exists, and it's giving more guidance to judges who are still making the ultimate determination yeah. in their discretion. Is there a separation of powers concern when you have a legislative body telling judges that they need to? Review potential evidence in a certain way, or I mean, we've done the uh, rape shield they're, laws. They're the for ones example. passing, you know, criminalizing the things that are not in the first place. So for them yeah. to put guardrails around that, to me, doesn't um, doesn't concern. Uh, yeah, you. I think I think there's a difference between setting up the guardrails versus if they were to if it was to be a blanket prohibition against this type of evidence. I think that would be more concerning. Yeah, taking away the discretion of the judges to make that determination on a case by case basis. And, and it's, it's contestable as well. This uh, bill sort of sets up a process for both the defendant and the prosecution to sort of go back and forth on whether certain contested lyrics should be included. You can mm -hmm. bring in outside experts. I think you're actually um, required to bring in outside experts. So I'm reading Popat, Ken White, our friend. Um, he did a tweet thread about this law and he said perhaps the most unusual part of the statute is the way it requires judges to consider if offered expert testimony about whether the artistic expression should be taken literally and whether judges are likely to freak out over it right so, so judges to consider if offered so like if the defense offers expert testimony I'm not quite sure what that means but um, there is part B of this law that says the following, uh, the court shall consider the following as well as any additional relevant evidence offered by either party. So credible testimony on the genre of creative expression, experimental or social science research, and evidence to rebut such research or testimony. So um, I know there are other laws like this that are being considered both at the state and federal level. I think there's one in New York. I believe there's a federal law as well, and FIRE participated in an advertising campaign sort of, sort of encouraging the passage of these laws with Warner Media Group uh, that ran as a full page, I think two full page spreads in the New York Times. So I'm sure this won't be the last that we hear about it. Um, Aaron, I'm just, and Will, I'm just kind of dropping this one on you now, but I thought it might be relevant because we talked about it in one of our rapid response meetings, but you remember when New York City uh, Remove or the New York Police Department. This is kind of jawboning, right? It it had at least three local New York artists removed from the Rolling Loud music tour that was set to take place in Brooklyn um, because they thought that their appearance in this in the show would incite incite violence. And I think the Rolling Loud group ended ended up saying, "Okay, you know, we'll drop them from the show." But it's just another mm -hmm. piece of example about how rappers are under the thumb of government and maybe uh, unduly well, and, and before we leap too much into jawboning, how many different levers the state has to pull um, if, if they want someone to change their behavior. Nice parade you've got there. It would be a shame if you didn't get a permit for it. Uh -huh. uh, and we don't usually think about those as potential speech controls, but when you have informal demands, almost any lever the government has is at its disposal can become a tool of speech control. Yeah, I realize now we've mentioned jawboning a few times uh, <laughs> because it is, of course, the title of your article here. But it's not a phrase that I've heard or I, I was even familiar with 
prior to like four months ago. So what, what does it actually mean? Will? Okay, well, uh, we will leap right into it. <laughs> well, uh, we're, I want to go back to some other news items, but I think it's important for our listeners that they understand what that means. So it was traditionally or first used in an economic context. It's a reference to Samson's vengeance on the Philistines in the book of Judges. Uh, and in the Bible. Yes. <laughs> which if you're a member of the... Uh, if you go to school in Keller, Texas, you won't have access to. But. <laughs> Sorry, kids. Um, in, in which he proclaims, with the jaw of an ass, I have slain a thousand men. And in the late 60s, early 70s, in kind of an inflationary environment like the one we're getting into now, presidents and other elected officials were trying to control price inflation. And because they didn't have legal tools to do this, to set prices, they often resorted to informal speech, cajoling, pressuring, threatening business owners and banks to keep prices and rates Isn't low. Isn't President Biden kind of doing that now with oil companies and gas A, a little bit, a little bit, yeah. yes. And in, in the sort of diplomatic foreign policy realm, then you've always seen this around oil pricing. Uh, but at the time, in perhaps a, a more religious America, um, it, it was uh, made a, a quip that Carter's speech to, to these bankers and businessmen um, was like Samson's vengeance in that with the jaw of an ass, mm -hmm. kind of mocking Carter there, he was slaying thousands of businessmen. Um, meaning of ass. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, so you, you've heard this term in this economic discourse for a while, but it's really only in the aughts, 20-teens, as our speech has moved online, that we've started to see this informal pressure, this jawboning, levied against social media platforms in an effort to control what their users say. Yeah, and maybe we should just jump into the jawboning stuff now. I, you know, I've got two other stories that perhaps we can come back to later, but I think you've, you've really segued us nicely into talking about some of the stuff that's been happening with Elon Musk, um, which are, I think some might argue are examples of jawboning. Let's start with Ed Markey, right? He is a senator from Massachusetts. He sits on a lot of the committees that regulate industries that Elon Musk's businesses are in. Uh, and Markey sent a letter to Elon Musk, and I'm quoting from a story from The Hill right now, asking for more information about how accounts on Twitter are being verified and accusing the social media company's new owner, in this case, Elon Musk, of allowing the spread of disinformation and, quote, putting profits over people. He sent this letter after his account was copied by a Washington Post reporter testing how easy it was to impersonate notable figures using Elon Musk's, uh, at that time recently launched, now paused, new blue checkmark verification system. Uh, the fake account was set up with Markey's permission, it sounds like from the Hill's reporting here, that he coordinated with the Washington Post, presumably, to make a point or to test the verification system. Um, but so, so to me, this is classic jawboning. Um, Markey, in a, I think, follow-up tweet or, or interview here, discusses the SEC's consent decrees against uh, Musk and other, other Musk companies and demands that Twitter implement 
guardrails around disinformation. Now, importantly, the consent decrees don't have anything to do with speech or content moderation. One of them has to do with Musk speech. Yeah, that's um, right. it's like he needs to get all of his tweets run by the Tesla's general counsel before tweeting. Can't can't alter the stock which price is a by tweeting. Yeah, which is a full time job if you see how much Musk has been tweeting late, lately. But yeah, but Markey, you know, raises the specter of these consent decrees and the the potential for them to to harm. Um, Musk and Twitter if he, he violates them or is seen to violate them, but then demands something that isn't covered by them and frankly that Markey can't demand or, or pass legislation to achieve, Twitter cracking down on disinformation. And he, he finishes with this uh, line, fix your companies or Congress will, uh, which to me was incredibly reminiscent of Senator Dianne Feinstein's 2017 demand that sort of inaugurated this new age of social media jawboning when she said, you've created these platforms and now they're being misused and you have to be the ones to do something about it or we will. Mm-hmm. That was in the context of Russian disinfo, but... And the platforms did do something about it, it, it right? It seems like they did, yes. Yeah. You can never really, and part of the difficulty of jawboning is that causality is very hard to tease out. Yeah. Well, Elon Musk was kind of egging him on, wasn't he? Well, yeah. What he he so Marky posted this letter on Twitter and he's demanding answers from Musk about how is this person able to create uh, an account in a Senator Ed Markey account with a blue check mark, uh, and then I think Musk's response was maybe it's because your account is a is a parody. <laughs> yeah, it says like, perhaps it's your, because your real account sounds, sounds like, like a parody. Sounds and, like a parody. And then yeah. he he took another dig. And why um, does your personal profile have a mask? <laughs> Very musky, um, right? Right. So, but what if what if Mark? I could see Marky, you know, responding to an accusa- accusation of jawboning by saying, "Well, actually, the things I was talking about, yet y- yes, they were other things, other real problems that Musk has. His Teslas are running people over, and I'm telling him he's got to f- he better fix those problems, or or Congress will." Yeah, and is there any relevance to the fact that he sits on the committee that regulates those industries and those sorts of actions or those mitigating circumstances when we think about jawboning? I mean, that, that's all, all well and good, but once you start talking about disinfo guardrails right. in the same breath, I think you've crossed a line. Right. Crossed um, a line and because of First Amendment concerns. Yes. And it, yes. Yeah, it started with the disinfo concerns, right? That, that's, where, that's where this whole dispute began. So it is hard exactly. to, it's hard to with, divorce with that letter. It, it wasn't yeah. like Markey was on a, a grind about Tesla recently yeah. and this just spilled over. It was very much the other way that he was worried about mm-hmm. Twitter under its new ownership. Um, you know, at the end of the day, platforms can implement bad or poorly thought through policies and it isn't really Congress's role to step in and correct their mistakes for them. Um, imagine that in other business contexts. Uh, Lockheed Martin, the new, the new uh, design you're going with, uh, I'm not sure I like it, so let's, let's yeah. think about this, or yeah. car companies. Right, and, and, it, and this, is, this is probably a good place to point out that misinformation is not an exception to the First Amendment, right? There's no general First Amendment exception for false speech. There are certain types of false speech that may be punishable like fraud, right? But uh, there's just... There's no general exceptions for just anything that the government deems misinformation. Well, the Supreme Court had that stolen valor case, right? Where mm-hmm. someone was pretending to be a Medal of Honor recipient and wasn't. And there is, um, I think there was probably a law that said you couldn't pretend to be a Medal of Honor uh, 
recipient and this person was prosecuted under it and it went up to the Supreme Court and the said, Supreme Court said, no, you can lie about your credentials. Um, I, I'm sure there are certain contexts in which you can't, but at yeah, least it, in that case. I think if, if, for instance, that person had used that uh, uh, that lie to try and gain something of value in like return, a job, perhaps. Yeah, th then, then maybe you're entering fraud territory. But, but just like saying on social media, perhaps, and I'm not saying that's what happened, the facts of this he's case. Trying were. to make himself look better for women, yeah, like, be more attractive. <laughs> but as, as the court gets into, there, there are all kinds of lies that people tell in the context of dating. And if the state were to get involved in that, well, this country has fertility problems as it is, but that would only make it worse. <laughs> well, this is a misinformation is different from disinformation. I think we covered this on the last mm -hmm. podcast. And malinformation? Yeah, right? We're, we're, we're having an article kind of breaking down all these different words and phrases that literally were not in my mind, much like jawboning, it seems like two years ago, right? Uh, misinformation used to just be lies, or uh, when Trump came into power, fake news, he would say. Um, but now there's this whole like lexicon surrounding it, and I don't know where it came from precisely. Perhaps nowhere, but um, disinformation is like, you know it's a lie and you're deliberately spreading it anyway. That's just like the Russian bot farms. Um, yes. Versus someone who just gets something wrong. Like right. LeBron James, that was going to be another uh, topic of our conversation today. He tweeted out at Musk essentially after there were allegations that there was a rise in hate speech on the platform after he took over. Turns out that to the extent there was a rise in hate speech, it came from few accounts, probably bot, bot farms. Well, and just 4chan trolls. As yeah. soon as Musk took over, there were a certain segment of people who felt, well, let's push this as far as we can. Let's, let's see exactly what we can get away with. And yeah, scare all the libs now that, that Musk is in charge. So you had a fairly concerted effort by a group of channers to just create new accounts and use them to shout racial slurs at people. It was nasty. A lot of them were banned right off the bat. Uh, Yoel Roth had a good thread about how Twitter responded to yeah, this. Yeah, he was but... Twitter's safety person. I think. I don't yes, think was. <laughs> <laughs> but when I say misinformation, I mean there's LeBron James who tweeted at Musk during that conversation around hate speech. He said, so many damn unfit people saying hate speech is free speech, uh, which I think those of us on this at this table know and our listeners who have been listening to us for a while know there is no First Amendment exception. Uh, for hate speech to the Constitution. And so we kind of uh, did a brush back against LeBron James that surely he did not see, but <laughs> we felt was warranted. Well, and I think it's interesting in our conversations about dis and misinformation that that kind of elite misinfo, mm -hmm. um, the misperceptions of celebrities and people in power, don't get uh, more criticism as disinfo because in terms of both their power to set standards and perhaps to act on the world around them, they have a lot more than you know your average voter who you're worried will miscast a vote because he believes the wrong thing about vaccines or recent bills. Um, but these these sorts of rumors or uh, accepted truths that that are not truth um, at the elite or sort of blue check level seem to get a pass, but that's where it can do much more harm. Was it the other day, the idea that the Eli Lilly uh, false Twitter account was responsible for a decline in its stock when really there was a, a decline in the demand for one of its drugs. Um, lots of prominently placed seemingly Wait, so wait, wait, can you go over that again? I, I didn't yeah. know that that was actually, because so the facts here are that 
Elon Musk launches his new verification system. Someone creates a fake Eli Lilly account and says, as of now, all insulin is going to be free or something like that. Yes. There was a decline in Eli Lilly's stock price that people attributed to that, but you're saying there was something else going on? Yes, there was, uh, I, I believe, a retroviral drug that Eli Lilly and a couple of other competing firms um, created versions of, which apparently the demand for or available alternatives to um, declined and increased such that they all took There was some sort of announcement about that that just happened to coincidentally be timed with... Indeed. And despite that, and, you know, several sort of debunking threads from finance types, it seemed as though all of the platform watchers just chose to believe or, or accept that it was the, the false Eli Lilly account that had prompted this. You know, in, in general, when false news on Twitter, particularly a kind of clearly false announcement like that, mm-hmm. uh, if it were to affect a stock price, it's going to be very short term because unless there's you know, truth beyond the lie. <laughs> unless our news ecosystem is really screwed up. Then you've just created a you know, 3% bounce back opportunity for anybody who buys on the false news. Yep, yep. So when we see that, it, it tends to auto-correct almost immediately. Yeah, I do want to, we keep circling back to the topic. <laughs> no, 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 this is good. We keep circling back to the topics that we jumped over when we got into jawboning, um, circling back to LeBron James and hate speech, but also misinformation. And I did promise that there were two California laws, one good and one bad. Uh, The other one that is bad uh, involves misinformation. Uh, Aaron, do you want to tell us a little bit about that surrounding COVID, right? Yeah, this is a California law that is targeting uh, alleged misinformation spread by doctors about COVID-19. So um, the law deems it unprofessional conduct for a doctor to disseminate disinformation or misinformation about COVID in the course of providing treatment or advice to a patient. Mm -hmm. And then misinformation uh, is in turn defined as information that's contrary to the scientific consensus. Uh, So two groups have filed lawsuits challenging this law under the First Amendment and the ACLU of Northern California recently filed an amicus brief in support of one of those suits. Yeah, I think there are two ACLU, uh, not state chapters, because. They have a number in oh, California, but oh, who are is involved. Right? Okay. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just trying to look at the reporting here to make sure I do got that right. But yes, the ACLU, uh, my printout, yeah, there are two ACLU, the ACLU of Southern California and then the ACLU of, um, I don't know, my thing cut off, no, but they're two. No, North, I, think North, I, think North, I think that's the, the brief that I read. But, but, doesn't, but don't state medical boards, in this case, the Medical Board of California, already regulate standards of care? Like, if you're a doctor, you can't engage in standards of care that would be considered perhaps like uh, uh, pseudoscience to try and treat your patients. They have a fiduciary responsibility as doctors to uh, give their patients the best medical treatment possible. Um, Yeah, so why do you need this? (laughs) And that that, that is kind of the ACLU's argument, is, is this is either just superfluous or you're, you are trying to reach something that that it goes beyond unprofessional conduct right what would be considered typically be considered unprofessional conduct and, and some of the so, debates surrounding this law would suggest that that was the motivating fact for lawmakers is they didn't like the doctors or other public uh, intellectuals or people speaking publicly what some of the things they were saying that were critical of what was then the scientific consensus about covid uh, but has since 
been maybe proven true. I mean, when we first started the COVID-19 pandemic, remember that the uh, Centers for Disease Control was saying, well, masks, unless you're wearing an N95, uh, aren't going to do anything for you. And then they said, wait, no, they are. Everyone should be wearing masks. And now they're saying, wait, if you're wearing a cloth mask, it really doesn't do anything for you. You got to be wearing an N95. So it's like been shifting. Constantly. Early debate over whether or not it was airborne when it seemed like there was plenty of evidence early on that you had airborne community transmission. And uh, there were a few months of putting our heads in the sand about that. And then they came out and accepted that. And so would, would you have gotten to that point as early as you did, where you recognize that airborne community spread, you know, under this sort of regime where the scientific consensus is that it, it's just uh, large droplets that sit on surfaces? I, right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, remember, everyone in the beginning was like spraying bleach. Lysoling. I had to stop yeah, my parents from doing that like a year later. Like, come on, guys. And then I remember there was a time, too, I think it was Fauci who said that the vaccines would be dead ends for the virus, too. But now we know even if you're vaccinated, you, you can still transmit the virus. Um, maybe you don't get as, as sick. But there's, all of this is to say that science is shifting, and that is okay. But this law would seem to... Uh, threatened the licensees of doctors who maybe were are ahead of the scientific consensus or expressing their opinions as part of their doctor-patient relationship? Yeah, and I, you know, obviously, in a sense, this is intended to be limited to that doctor-patient relationship or, or any time that they're um, providing medical advice. But, you know, the, the line between scientist and doctor is often blurry, and I do worry about this sort of ossifying uh, a given consensus, setting it in, in place and preventing the scientific community from moving on from one set of understandings to another. Yeah. So uh, I think we can get back to jawboning now, <laughs> now that we've taken our detour into the misinformation rabbit hole, which Aaron, as we continue to do these podcasts, I think we will continue to find ourselves in that rabbit hole and have to climb out given how much of the misinformation and disinformation conversation dominates the free speech conversation yeah. right now. Elon Musk was in the news as well. Biden was asked during a press conference, Will, uh, whether Elon Musk is a threat to national security. And in response to that, he said what? Uh, I'll look into it. I don't <laughs> want to be too, uh, I don't want to prejudge the situation. Frankly, to me, that felt less like a instance of, of jawboning. Biden didn't demand anything from Musk in that context. And the whole episode was really prompted by a journalist saying, do you think this is a threat to national security? And sort of conflating um, Musk's Saudi investment perhaps with uh, Saudi influence on or, or control over the platform. I think they've had an investment in it for a long time. And you know, that didn't stop them from smuggling their own spies in as well. So I don't think the investment <laughs> is getting them a lot in terms of intelligence. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't consider that jawboning. I, I do sort of worry when journalists seem to prod um, elected officials into perhaps taking harsher, stronger stances, particularly around speech disinfo, um, than they otherwise would or, or can constitutionally take. Yeah. Well, there were a lot of people who were rubbed the wrong way about this, and whether that's a jawboning or free speech concern, I think they were rubbed the wrong way because it's a—it's perhaps the most 
powerful man in the country who has had his run-ins with Elon Musk before. Um, you know, he doesn't invite Elon Musk to any of his conferences mm -hmm. around electric vehicles because of Elon Musk's stance on unions. He's obviously, he's a critic of the Democratic Party, and now you've got journalists prodding him to say, hey, are you going to look into this guy? And he's mm -hmm. saying, yeah, he should probably be looked into. What that means, you know, I don't know. No, I mean, and any the president's bully pulpit is uh, profound. Um, so I, I think any time he's singling out yeah. private companies, it raises an eyebrow. Right. Um, I think it, maybe it's not jawboning, but you could. I think there's a good argument that it's irresponsible, if nothing else. And it's it's um, yeah, like especially in the context of Biden and Musk's relationship. Right. They've been trading insults and criticism for a, a, kind of a while now. Uh -huh. um, what, what did Biden? say to him early this year, like, lots of luck on your trip to the moon, like sarcastically. Oh, and, and, and then it, when Musk acquired Twitter, he said, uh, Biden said something to the effect of uh, uh, he went out and purchased a platform that spews lies uh, all, all across the world. So Biden so said that? Yeah, Biden said that. So it's, and, and he's criticized him for being an anti-labor anti -labor billionaire. So, yeah. uh, so you know, it, there's, it's not unreasonable to think that maybe, you know, Biden standing up there and saying, yeah, maybe we should look into his companies is like he wouldn't have said that. But for the fact that he just has this antipathy towards Musk, towards Musk's criticism of the president and or and or the way that he manages Twitter yeah. and his companies. So but those things, of course, should have no effect on the likelihood that Musk or his companies face any sort of investigation. But there, but there's something separate from that. I mean, he owns SpaceX, which. Uh, Probably its biggest client is the United States government. Well, I think that's worth worth pointing to and, and dragging things back towards my paper for a moment because while well, the paper focuses on jawboning by members of Congress who, you know, they can drag you in for hearings, yeah. they can pass bills, but that's about it. Jawboning isn't limit, limited to legislators or threatened legislation. Um, legislative threats are often the most visible uh, but the government presiding over antitrust cases at the state and federal level, doling out fiber optics subsidies, picking partners for launches um, of all kinds of government, government stuff into space, um, then there's always some lever that the government can pull or, or individual government actors can often pull or, or influence. Um, when and it's they often want opaque. To apply yeah, I mean, you can't see, you can't, you often aren't seeing that pressure. It's, the, it's almost, uh, it's a seen and unseen to take from Frederick Bastian. It's easier to see the stuff that's happening. It's harder to see the stuff that, that isn't. Well, and even when the decision isn't influenced by, you know, stated antipathy, um, it, you can't get rid of the appearance of corruption that it creates. When a large, it was called the, the Jedi contract was awarded to Microsoft rather than Amazon for um, kind of military computing and cloud storage, Amazon contested it uh, and appealed the decision alleging that Trump had tipped it to Microsoft because he'd said nasty things about Jeff Bezos and didn't like him. Now I have no idea of, no, no way of determining whether that's true or not. Um, there wasn't any smoking gun there, but we feel as though we live in a less uh, lawful, perhaps, or rule-bound society when, yes, the president has kind of bullied or, or shouted at um, Bezos and then his competitor gets this contract instead of him. 
Uh, and I think that's one of the sort of underappreciated harms of jawboning is it's not just the potential for speech suppression, but when it's a normal enough tactic and we know it's happening, it's very hard for us to trust that particular decisions weren't jawboned or aren't implicated in jawboning efforts. Yeah, and as a matter of law, as you write in the paper, jawboning requires an explicit threat really to challenge, right? Tends to, yes. And this sort of social media jawboning is even more difficult to challenge than its analog cousins. When you have, there's an older case involving a telephone operator and a, a sex line. The operator was threatened by a local prosecutor and bounced the sex line. Everyone can tell that that's happened. You either get a dial tone or you don't. Yeah. It's a one-off binary decision. But platform content moderation includes all sorts of algorithmic promotion or demotion. So when you aren't getting the followers you used to or your content isn't seen the way that it used to be, you can worry that that might be the, the result of some government jawboning pushing the platform to treat your speech differently. But proving that that has happened is so much harder than the sex hotline recognizing that it's been disconnected after the um, telco was threatened. Yeah, you ha can you talk a little bit about this one case involving Ivan the something? Do you know what I'm talking Ivan about? Ivan the troll, yes. Uh, so he's a, a fellow on Twitter who... Or was a fellow on Twitter? I believe he's back under uh, a different account. Um, you know, as long as you aren't sort of a public figure carrying a big reputation with you, it's actually very easy to evade bans on social media. You just can't, can't carry your stardom. You know, if Alex Jones creates a new account, he could do that tomorrow. He just can't announce that he's Alex Jones <laughs> yeah. or he'll get banned again. Um, but, yeah, there was a fellow in the 3D gun printing community named Ivan the Troll who often prodded politicians and, and anti-gun activists about the futility of their efforts in light of 3D printing. And here he was singled out in a letter written by Senator Menendez. Of New Jersey. Yes, asking that, that he be banned, um, that Twitter remove him. And lo and behold, shortly after this, this letter was sent, he was. Um, now, this hasn't been litigated, so it, it's very hard to tell whether, you know, or prove beyond, beyond a reasonable doubt. That, but, but the thing that's interesting about yes. that case, right, is that Senator Bob Menendez engaged in misinformation himself, right? In his letter to Twitter, he says that Ivan, the troll's sharing of 3D print, gun printing instructions, uh, violated the law based on a recent court decision, um, he, and he, he did it. Yes, yes. He tries to, to present what Ivan was doing as a potential ITAR violation. What's ITAR? The International Traffic in Arms Regulation, a kind of defense regulation that was implemented in the mid-Cold War to prevent missile technologies from leaking to the Soviets, that sort of thing. Yeah. And there have been allegations, and it has been there's been litigation around whether or not contemporary 
pre 3D printed gun files fall under, can, can be regulated by these ITAR rules. But what uh, Ivan was doing involved old designs for the AR-15, which are already publicly available because they were released by the government years ago so that many different private contractors could build guns for them. Um, so yes, in an attempt to, to prod Twitter to remove this, he paints this as potentially illegal when it, it just clearly isn't. And that's a fairly common jawboning tactic. You'll often see politicians really stretch the law in an attempt to present some user speech or activity as illegal and prompt the platform to remove it because you don't want this illegal speech or conduct on your platform. When if it were, were actually litigated, um, the speech would be protected by the First Amendment. I, I believe that uh, Richard Blumenthal also uh, really e exampled that that approach when talking about. Um, well, I do. I, I want to take doc, one second. Dr. Fauci. Sorry. Yeah, let's um, go back to Fauci. But I do want to say one interesting thing about Twitter in that Ivan the Troll case is they didn't have a policy against sharing that sort of information on the platform. But in suspending Ivan the Troll, they informed Menendez, who's the last name of the account owner, that the account had been suspended for violating, quote, Twitter's longstanding policy that prohibits the promotion of weapons. However, the quoted policy governs advertising. And the policy's page header reads, this policy applies to Twitter's paid advertising product. It does not apply to user submitted content. Now, Twitter then later, in kind of like a post hoc justification, changed the policy uh, to be more specific and to reach, arguably, the sort of speech that Ivan the Troll was engaged that, in. That's almost even more concerning, right? Then, because it's not just banning Ivan on a, a one-off fashion. Menendez has sort of pushed them to change their policies, to adopt a new policy prohibiting a whole variety of speech. That would otherwise be protected by the First Amendment. That is, right? is protected by the First Amendment, yeah. but now is no longer allowed on Twitter. Um, because they were browbeaten or, or jawboned. Um, but you were looking for what? It was a Blumenthal story? Yes. I'm, I need to, to know my own paper a little bit better. <laughs> well, it is like a 30-page uh, paper. so I. Here we go. <laughs> Steve Bannon. Um, so oh, yeah. You, you have Steve Bannon on his radio show uh, back in, in 2020 complaining about COVID lockdowns and saying that if Trump gets uh, another term, he ought to go medieval on, on these types, on the CDC folks. If I were president, I'd put uh, Anthony Fauci's head on a pike for everybody to see. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kind of nasty thought, but he's not president. He has no power to be beheading people and putting their heads on pikes. And it's all clearly presented as a hypothetical. If I would, I'd be Tudor England style, uh, but Blumenthal- Clearly hyperbole, yeah. yes. protected, not yes. a true threat undefined, as defined yeah, under the law. De definitely protected, yeah. Um, but Blumenthal presents this as illegal speech. He says to Mark Zuckerberg in, in a hearing, how many times is Steve Bannon allowed to call for the murder of government officials before Facebook suspends him? Um, and then even asked more specifically, will you commit to taking down that account, Steve Bannon's account? Yeah. Um, so he's calling out a, a particular speaker, again, for speech that's protected, even though he's presenting it as, as unprotected. 
Um, and finally, he, he pivots to threatening antitrust action when Zuckerberg, showing some backbone here, refuses to remove or pledge to remove Bannon's account for this. Hmm. Well, they, they are, so government officials can't compel private companies to do what they themselves as government officials cannot do. Right? Exactly. But, you know, if someone wanted to challenge, like Steve Bannon wanted to sue, for example, in that case, your paper makes it sound like the recourse would be limited because of Article 1, Section 6 of the Constitution, the Speech and Debate Clause for members of Congress, right? Indeed. It's what makes this congressional jawboning sort of the most difficult to get at. Yeah. Can you explain um, that clause and what it means and why so it's relevant? It, it, there's, there's good reasons to have it. Um, you, you don't want members of Congress to be sued for things they say in the course of debate. Yeah, they essentially have immunity yes, for what they it, say. It the grants them essentially total immunity for anything said in the course of a congressional debate or, or in relation to legislative. Yeah, they can have open and frank discussions and not have to worry about exactly. a barrage of lawsuits. Yeah. But it means that unless they're you know, doing their jawboning in a fundraising email, perhaps, um, or maybe the sort of, of letter that uh, Menendez sent, um, you essentially cannot challenge or, or litigate on their side the pressure that they put on platforms. Um, so letters, so this, when we think about the speech and debate clause, we're talking about discussion and debate that's happening during committee hearings or on the floor of the, the, the House of Representatives or the Senate. We're not talking about, or it's arguable that it doesn't apply or reach to letters sent. Yes, it can depend a little bit on the context of the letter. Um, that's been litigated in the past. There were these Golden Fleece Awards given out by William Proxmire in the 1980s. Um, he was sued over one of these, which... Golden Fleece? Yes, yes. Um, he, he would single out um, academics, contractors, um, government employees who, who he felt were stealing money from the taxpayers, essentially. Oh, okay. Um, who'd been, been given, you know, handouts that they didn't deserve. And he singled out someone's, I, I believe, ape research at one point um, and managed to uh, defame them in, in his uh, letter to constituents um, announcing this, this oh, award. Okay. Um, so there, because it was seen as kind of a constituent information letter um, and, and really in a sense a sort of campaigning material. He was drawing attention to his accomplishments um, rather than debate. Um, then it, it was not, he did not receive the protection of the speech or debate clause. However, here when you have a, a letter that is ostensibly requesting information from a platform which might be useful to your debate or legislation, it's less clear cut. Yeah, um, and uh, so I have a question about that. So the the speech and debate clause will provide immunity to the the Congress member themselves, but it, let's say that what they say in in the, the House or Senate chamber um, amounts it, it rises to the level of coercion, uh, so that a private platform might be considered a a state actor. That's where uh, it gets really difficult. Like they, yeah, and, and that's a very, I know it's a very difficult argument to make in court, right? But, but if you can, but you can, that argument's still available, even it, if the job is It is available, yeah. um, but I think the difficulty there is that 
all of your potential remedies landing on the platform. And it, it essentially would be punishing them for having been jawboned or not resisting the government demand as fiercely as, as they should have. So the, so the plaintiff in that sort of case would need to be the platforms and they're probably very reluctant because again, there are all these levers that government officials can use. Like to, the threat to, to take away them. Section 230, which provides them immunity for uh, the content posted by users on their platforms. And there's been a lot of talk, particularly from the Biden administration and very many, very many prominent members of Congress, that they want to remove that. You know, why why poke the bear yeah. with a lawsuit, right? S sometimes that, in particular, I think that you're hitting upon an important distinction here, isn't really jawboning. Uh, because if they're complaining about speech that, say, they would like removed and discussing potential legislative changes that might see that speech removed, then they aren't really jawboning. The more orthogonal or oblique the threat is to the demand, the more likely it is so, to So be saying Facebook, unless you deplatform Steve Bannon, we're going to, you know, and do this sort of thing voluntarily we're going to pass Section 230 uh, legislation that'll take away your immunity. Yeah, or even imagine the the liability for Steve Bannon Act. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it, <laughs> that you would know, almost be a bill of attainder. It, it would, <laughs> it would, but it, the whole thing would look much less like jawboning. However, when you say, or when Blumenthal says, "Well, we'll have to look into expanding antitrust law because you won't remove Steve Bannon," well, even if you split Facebook up into Instagram, WhatsApp, and and Big Blue, there you'd still have Bannon on all of them. It wouldn't compel either of those, uh, you know, new parceled off pieces to remove him. Well, so that looks much more like jawboning because you're just threatening something that will harm the platform but won't get you what you want. There's actually, I want to find this when we talk about how the avail other available avenues of communications on the platform. I believe it was, you have a note about it in here. It's, Biden and Jen Psaki as then press secretary were talking about how these platforms need to do more to eliminate myths or disinformation. Oh yeah, okay, so in August 2021, President Biden accused Facebook of killing people by hosting speech questioning the safety and efficacy of coronavirus vaccines. Jen Psaki, Biden's press secretary, insisted that Facebook needs to move more quickly to remove harmful violative posts and called for cross-platform action, saying you shouldn't be banned from one platform and not others. For providing misinformation, which again is another word for uh, a falsehood. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, I think that's very concerning because it's not just jawboning, but jawboning that subverts the vitality and, and value add of a free private internet. Yeah. All of these platforms can have their own policies. What one platform does shouldn't require other platforms to follow suit. Yeah. And you get a speech ecosystem where different speech that appeals to different people can find different homes. And her demand here just sort of runs roughshod over that entire model, um, and instead demanding uniformity. And by the way, after Biden said that, didn't, didn't Twitter or Facebook or one of the platforms immediately, almost immediately remove or, or suspend the account of of somebody who's considered a prominent spreader of COVID oh, misinformation, this, um, or am I thinking of a different? No, I I know who you're talking. Uh, Colin, uh, what's his Bar name? Uh, Baron Berenson, right? Uh, yeah. Something. Yeah, I think it's I think it's Alex Berenson. Alex Berenson. Alex Berenson. That's right. Yeah. Who I think is now suing. Yeah, he sued, yeah. and 
he got some discovery that did suggest there were communications behind the scenes where they mm -hmm. asked Twitter or whatever other platform, why is this guy still on the platform? And that's, and that he was, well, and there are these concern, fascinating right? Missouri and Louisiana lawsuits around um, C CDC and DHS jawboning, um, which frankly started to bear fruit just as this was finalized and going to the printers, uh -huh. uh, which is why it doesn't make much I did want to ask you about here. the election integrity partnership, which I think is some kind of where you're going here. But I, there, there you, you can do more about the jawboning when you find it because it's not coming from members of Congress, but it's coming it's, from agencies. It, yes, but it's occurring in private. So absent that sort of AG discovery fishing expedition, um, it, it's very hard to discover that it's happened in the first place. Unlike the congressional jawboning, which occurs out in public in congressional hearings, but you, you can't do as much about it. But there's nothing protecting um, the employees of administrative agencies here. And Kathy McMorris Rogers has actually proposed an, an interesting bill in light of those, those discoveries um, to expand the Hatch Act to cover demands by agency employees that platforms remove speech, um, which I think, you know, looking at all of the options on the table here, it's a small step, but it's a good first step to take and to, to see how that, especially on this agency administrative side, um, changes this sort of behavior. With Congress, the best we can do are internal congressional rules because they can set their own rules for themselves as a club or simply electing representatives who have more respect for our speech. Yeah, well, this was a hell of a timely article <laughs> there, Will. Uh, I imagine it came out or was finished ahead of the news about the Election Integrity Partnership, um, which I know, Aaron, we've been talking a yeah. bit about in our rapid response meetings. For those who are listening who aren't familiar with it, ahead of the 2020 election, a group called the Election Integrity Partnership was set up to monitor election-related disinformation and misinformation. And it was established in partnership with the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity, and Infrastructure Security Agency. Um, and they sort of knew that they, as an agency, couldn't lead this effort because it would raise, and one of the partners says this, serious First Amendment concerns. So they set up a consortium of members, including Stanford Internet Observatory, Washington University Center for an Informed Public, the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Labs, and Graphica, to run a, a essentially an informal, or formal I should say, ticketing system whereby they would investigate false rumors and misinformation about election-related processes and procedures. Um, and they, they claimed they had a narrow focus on misinformation related to procedural interference or participation interference or fraud and delegitimization efforts of election results. So what was the outcome of this? Um, during the investigative process, EIP, the Election Integrity Partnership, discussed the tickets with social media platforms that were submitted to them, as well as their government and civil organization partners. And 79% of these tickets were created internally by EIP personnel. 16% of the tickets came from an independent nonprofit election integrity information sharing group. Uh, but 5%, or a little bit less than 5 came from a division of the Department of State, the government, right? A little bit more concerning. Um, they are also a small handful of tickets that came from the NAACP and the DNC, which raised this kind of specter 
of partisan work, but I guess they claim that they reached out to the RNC too about participating in the information sharing and they didn't respond to them. Did the platform see where the tickets were coming from in all of these scenarios? Because that know. would seem sort of key there to me, where if, if you don't, then it's almost healthy to have the government request commingled with everyone else's so the platform never knows that this yeah, is from sort state. Of this blind grading. But if not, then you could, it would be very interesting to see the difference in rates upon which they were acted upon. Yeah, well, there were 4,000 URLs that were shared with the social media platforms. Uh, the platforms investigated 75% of the items and they took some sort of moderation action that's removed, added fact check language, et cetera, on 35 percent of the items flagged. Uh, but as you can imagine, this was concerning to some folks. And, and what is also what was interesting for us at FIRE when we were discussing this, Aaron, as you'll recall, uh, all of the work that the Election Integrity Partnership was doing, I mean, a lot of it was written up. It was public information. They had like a 200 and something page report called the Long Fuse Misinformation in the 2020 Election. Um, but nobody was reporting on it until this conservative-leaning news outlet, Just the News, reported on it. We were like, so we almost felt like, like, are we being misinformed? Like, we see all this primary source document and it seems concerning to us from the jawboning perspective, but nobody's reporting on it. And still, really, nobody has reported on it. Now that Republicans are, are um, taking over the House of Representatives, I think some have indicated that they want to hold hearings on this sort of thing. But it was, <laughs> I almost felt a little gaslit, right? Like, am I not well, believe, why should I not believe my own eyes? I think part of the difficulty with stuff like that is that those, you know, in the know, those at Stanford Internet Observatory involved in this have been in the water so long that it seems anodyne, um, especially when the focus is on that, that election process. But having looked at some of the, the materials that were forwarded on, and again, I don't know if it was acted upon, but... They're also just sort of dumb parodies of official state accounts in there, um, which you know shouldn't be expected to confuse anyone capable of casting a vote. I guess I would say. Um, but this, uh, some of the stuff they were forwarding along, um, you can call it job warning or you can call it whatever. You know, it's information sharing. I think is what they call it. Um, you know, might have compromised elections or confused people, things like telling people you're polling places in one place and it's not. Uh, you know, the government arguably has an interest in ensuring that that sort of information doesn't get spread with the purpose of undermining the integrity of the election. Um, it, but it So there's, like, there's difficult lines to draw, right? I, I think the best way of approaching that difficult line drawing is for the government to offer its own counter speech publicly. Um, you know, post all, all of those 4,000 examples that you've identified, you know, in real time as you're identifying them yeah, and say, this from this URL hosted on this server is saying this and we're, we're considering it false or we believe it to be false. Because doing it out in public that way is the only real way of dealing with the appearance of corruption that is created when you have this private sort of off the record um, clearinghouse, even if it's ostensibly just for process-related misinformation. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, we've gone long on this one, and I've got a lunch meeting that i got to make, but uh, it's a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you writing this article, Will. Again, for our listeners, it's called Jawboning Against Speech, How Government Bullying Shapes the Rules of Social Media. I'll have it linked in the show notes. Yeah, he's got the fancier copy that's bound over there. Um, but 
this topic isn't going away. Will, I think you wrote an article at a very important time in the conversation. And I know we've been talking about these sorts of issues a lot, Aaron. And uh, Aaron, congratulations on your promotion. Thank you. <laughs> um, listeners are going to be hearing a lot more from Aaron. But um, Will, Aaron, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you Thank for you. having me. So I forgot my outro for this podcast, but you can check out the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, on Instagram, we're at Free Speech Talk. On Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. And as listeners know, you can always email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. We take a look at that and we respond where we can. Reviews help listeners or new potential listeners uh, find the show. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, I thank you all for listening.